Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the dynamics of leading a digital transformation process at a large organization, the importance of having a customer success officer, and how to better utilize data, advanced analytics, AI, and the cloud to provide solutions in the future. As digital transformation is occurring at different speeds at different organizations, it becomes clear that going it alone may not be the best path to success. But once organizations sign the check with a technology partner, the onboarding process of deploying new technologies and solutions is not always smooth. I'm joined today by Janine Sneed, Chief Digital Officer and VP of Customer Success at IBM. I met Janine a few weeks ago when I spoke at an IBM event in New York City, and I was impressed that she was managing digital transformation both within IBM and with clients her team works with. She is both passionate and highly focused on bringing tangible results, integrating both people and technology. So Janine, I met you a few weeks ago at an IBM event that you were at and that I was fortunate enough to speak at. But one thing that impressed me is that you really are at the the foundation, at the the tipping point of digital transformation, not only at IBM, but also with the clients that IBM has. You work on the onboarding process for new transformation technology clients for IBM. Can you explain a little bit about your dual role? Yes, absolutely. So I think IBM felt that I wasn't busy enough with one role, so they gave me two. (laughs) But both are really in the construct of really trying to enable customers to embrace the world that we live in with digital transformation. And if I had a penny for every time someone said digital transformation, I could quit both jobs now. But I wear two hats. So in January of 2018, I was asked to take a role to help transform the way IBM goes to market through digital channels, through alternative routes. So it's all about how we enable best-in-class experiences, self-service through the web. So that's one part of my role. And then the other part of my role came um, about 11 months ago where I was asked to pick up customer success. Now, customer success is all about how we enable our customers to get value from the software and the services that they purchased. So it's not a sales role. We come in after the customer signs the contract to onboard the client to ensure that the client is getting to first productive use and starts to go down a journey map of how they can be effective with our software and our solutions. So really, this is not much different. I mean, we can change the players in this. I mean, it can be IBM or any solution provider. You can change the industry from banking to retail to to any other industry. The reality is we're all faced with this problem of, okay, buying the technology is one thing. Putting it to use, effective use, is another. With regard to the customer success organization that you're building, what are the steps that really you take or what have you learned in the process? I know you've been there a relatively short time, but you seem to be embracing it quite a bit. What what have you learned in the process of, of building a customer success organization? Yeah, it's fascinating. I think there's a couple tenants, right? So one of the things that we see is a customer success manager truly has T-shaped skills where they have to know the product and understand the product and the portfolio 
so that they can be credible in front of the client. And then, then they have to be able to communicate, right? Having executive communication skills. That's what I mean by T-shaped skills, right? And what I find is that when we look at our data, we're very data-driven and we could talk a little bit about that. But whenever we look at the data, where we have customer success managers on accounts, we're driving anywhere to 30 to 60% more usage from those customers versus where we don't have customer success managers. So they go in and they really roll up their sleeves. They sit with their customers to figure out how the customers could best use the software. So I find that usage is growing where we've got customer success managers. So that's one thing. I think the other thing that I've seen is all about metrics. IBM, as you know, isn't a born on the cloud company. We're 109 years old. Our brand has been in software, at least since you know I've been there and then before that hardware and so forth, right? So we come with this amazing heritage and brand for what we, we values and virtues, but getting everybody to understand what customer success means and metrics around usage, around NRR percentage, around expansion, around renewal, and getting them to see metrics that matter in the context of the overall business has been super important. And then the third thing is, it's a team sport. We can't put the success of a customer on the back of a CSM. The CSM is there at the forefront post-close. But oftentimes we may need to pull in, for example, support because maybe there's an issue with something going on with the software or the service, right? Maybe they need lab services and they want to go down you know, a project where we need to bring in our expert services team. Maybe we need to bring in product management because we really, really need to go deep inside of the product roadmap three, six months. So I'd like to think of it as a team sport. So those are the three things that I've learned so far. And I think both are important. I think for the greater good of IBM, we can't be too disruptive. I have to appreciate how the business leaders think, the senior VPs and the GMs think, right? And help them understand the customer success metrics in their terms. That's probably been the most challenging, but it's the most important for them to see the value of what we do. So it's interesting because you take that role on at IBM, but your clients probably could benefit from having a customer success officer that would look at their retail, let's say it's a retail business, uh, their retail customers, and make sure that whatever is being worked on and deployed is good for their customers, very much like you do for your customers. And again, you get down to, can I make it so it's a good experience? Can I make it so I can measure it? And I'm not using the data most effectively because I would imagine most people sign a check with IBM or any solution provider at least initially, to save costs. Or it's not, unfortunately, while they put a good, you know, veneer on it saying it's for the customer experience, it's not normally done that way, but the customer experience is the way to pay off on that. Would you see that your partner organizations would be better off if they also had a customer success officer and basically looked at their clients the same way you're looking at yours? Oh, 100%. And I think there's a couple drivers to this, but the biggest driver... Jim, that I fundamentally believe is because the world is moving into subscription. I mean, everything is available as a service, right? I start subscribing to things on my phone and I didn't realize, you know, okay, I'm in a 12 month subscription now. I mean, it may only be five bucks a month, but you're in a subscription. And so when you think about it, it's not just about that first land. It's all about the lifetime value of the customer. 
And how are you growing that customer and keeping that customer? How are you getting them to use and then potentially expand what they have, cross sell additional services? I think I saw a stat where it's five to 25 times more expensive to land a new customer than to take care of an existing customer. So that's one data point. And the other data point, Gainsight is one of the vendors that we use for customer success management tooling. And they published an article where they said the customer success profession is growing at 736%. Since 2005, and it's one of the top 10 fastest growing professions. Again, I think that's due to the subscription economy. And I don't believe it just has to be you're a SaaS service and that's the only thing that's at play here. I think it's every industry. I think it's many different products that lend themselves to having a customer success manager. A major part of your responsibility is to help organizations Build a structure around enhanced data and AI to maximize the benefits of AI. But obviously, you hit upon challenges, and that's why your job exists, to onboard people so they can make the best use of your technology. What do you see as the biggest hurdle with organizations that you work with in actually using the tools that you provide them? Yeah, so I kind of look at this as having a beachhead in the customer account. And so it's sitting down with the sponsored user and that team and helping them become wildly successful with the software. So it's not about so much IBM's you know, usage and how we're seeing it, but is the customer getting value from it? For example, so take something like BlueWorks Live. It's a business process modeling tool. And maybe in the old world, you would have 20, 30, 40 people collaborating and writing business processes on Visio. Well, that's kind of where they started. After we put in BlueWorks Live, did we just accelerate the time to value of building business processes together as a team? Did we go from 20 people to 40 people to 60 to 80 people? Did we reduce the time it takes to build a business process from maybe a week down to two days because of our tooling? So we sit down and truly try to find the beachhead and an MVP to work with a customer on to show value and then scale that. Because then everybody wants to be attached to something that works and something that's successful. So you also, in the digital transformation within IBM, probably have seen challenges because, as you said, IBM has been around for a while. I kidded about the fact that I never thought I'd go to an IBM meeting where everybody's wearing jeans, no ties, and not necessarily (laughs) blue – But, you know, (laughs) obviously change comes slowly to legacy organizations, and you're part of that change management to try and make things happen. What has been your biggest challenge internally at IBM? Because if you're a bank, if you're a retailer, if you're a hospitality company, the bigger they are, the harder it is to unseat legacy thought patterns. What have you seen as the biggest challenge? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I'm responsible for the end-to-end digital transformation for cloud and cognitive software across the units. And when you think about this, at the end of the day, IBM has products and services and solutions. And when we think about digital, we don't have a separate development team that is building digital capabilities in our offerings. It's the same development team. So the biggest challenge that I've Face, and I think we've made a ton of progress in 23 months, or else I wouldn't be here right now. 
they would have uh, flushed me out and put somebody else in is working back in with development. So helping development understand the importance of product instrumentation, of in-application onboarding, of using our own AI chatbots within the product or within a web page to take out some of that manual work and time that a human has to go through and automate a lot of that. And so it's sitting down though with development to help them see, okay, you wanna put this feature inside of the product, but why are you doing that if you don't know if anybody is using it? So I'm trying to help them see why digital capability, digital criteria, the same thing that we're talking to our customers about is so important for building within our own products and out in our own web presence. That's been the biggest challenge. And honestly, it's just skills and it's mind shift, it's culture shift. And then it's seeing when I could show them and have them see that they put product instrumentation in or they put onboarding in and users are using that feature. They're like, wow, how do I see this part if they're using it? And I'm like, well, it's not instrumented yet. Let's go instrument it. So that's been the biggest challenge, but it's also been the most rewarding because it's getting people to work differently for the digital transformation initiative that we're on. So speaking of people, when we were on the panel a few weeks ago, we discussed the challenges in finding qualified talent in the tech space. What do you see as the solutions for finding, training, and retraining tech talent? Yeah, that's a good question. So in the broader context of tech talent, not just in the context of digital, I believe it's a mix of reskilling and retraining existing talent. I mean, let's face it, we invest in our people. People on the team are the biggest asset you have. And I believe that everybody has good intentions. They wanna build new skills. They wanna be competitive. They wanna learn the next new thing. So I think the balance of retraining and reskilling, which we are doing so much of in IBM, it's awesome to watch. And we even have time that certain organizations have carved out so that we can take time to do training. We've got certification programs and learning programs, especially with Red Hat coming in. I mean, it's been awesome. But then there also is talent that we do bring in from outside to help us and set the bar in new ways, especially around data science and AI. I mean, we have an amazing chief data officer that came in from Monsanto, Seth Dobrin, and he's done so much to set the bar of what we need to do within data science within our own organization and unit. So I think it's a mix of both. So Amazon recently announced an initiative where they're going to be training 100,000 of their employees so that they can survive the marketplace challenges. And part of that came about because they had a, a virtually impossible time finding the people that they need for the higher tech jobs. And they said, you know, it might be better to train people from within rather than having to always go to the outside for new talent. Um, what role do you think business and government play in trying to build the workforce for the future? I think it's a great question. I think they play a very significant role. I think we talk about skills of the, the next new you know, re renewable energy and resource. So, for example, I think that it's paramount for businesses to set an agenda for skills, but also be part of curriculum development and developing those certifications and developing those standards. We've done this. I mean, we've done this out with open source communities. We've done this. We've announced data science certificates on Coursera. So we've done many of these things ourselves. I think that it goes hand in hand. They have very much a part of it. So 
you also have a situation where in any legacy organization, you have a lot of people above you, below you, on the same level as you that aren't buying into change. They've succeeded at what they've been doing for years. They see absolutely no reason to change because it, it's all worked for them in the past. What do you see as the way to get those people to really see the fact that, you know, they may be disrupted if they don't take action? Existing skills, you mean? Yeah. So I think what we do is we do a lot of career coaching. We do a lot of one-on-ones. We do a lot of development with our team. And so I believe that it actually starts with leadership and it starts with management. If leadership sets the tone that this is where the skills are within the industry and provides training, provides the time, encourages the time, employees are going to take it, but they're also going to be more engaged. They're going to see that their leaders care about them. They're going to see that their leaders are investing in them. By the way, not all training has to be, you know, $20,000. There's a ton of free training that's out there on the web that's good stuff that you can take. And then there's great training that corporations are providing, many large corporations and small alike provide. But I think it starts with leadership and it starts with managers taking that time to invest in the employees and ensure that they're giving them some of that time to do the training throughout the month and the quarter. So staying on the subject of the future work, IBM has been doing a lot of this area, but how do organizations help to improve the gender gap that exists in big business overall? So you hit a passionate topic of mine. (laughs) So I think there's a lot of progress that has been made, no doubt, but we still have a long way to go. So I think there's two or three things that are super important. Number one, we're not going to close the gender gap without men. So men have to be at the table, visible with women. And I'm not saying just put a woman in a role because she's a woman or put a minority in the role because they're a minority. I'm saying they have to be advocates and champions and listening to some of the challenges that, let's just stay on the topic of women, that women face. So men have to be part of the solution because they're in the leadership roles right now, right? So that's number one. Number two, women have to support each other. So within IBM, I launched and founded a community called GROW. It stands for Guidance, Resources, and Outreach for Women in Cloud and Cognitive Software. And we are active every month with live streams. So we do technical topics like becoming an inventor, day in the life of a data scientist. We have true technical topics where you can go on and learn some like coding things. And then we also do, you know, become an executive, executive presence. So it's the mix of soft skills, leadership skills, technical skills. And we have a Slack channel and we're over 2,600 in Slack. And this isn't like HR said, go in here. This is our women finding a platform, this platform, where they feel like they can bring their whole self to work to achieve what they want to achieve, right? And being themselves and getting help and support. I mean, that's the whole point of Grow. It's having the platform and getting the support and the resources that they need to grow their career. I keep it very focused on career growth. It is about career growth. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing, it's on the individual. So it's about finding your voice. It's about finding your passion. And if you're in an environment where you're embraced and you're heard, the sky's the limit. But I think women have competence. I think they need more confidence. And so that's where I think 
people go above the line or below the line. So I want to help women get that confidence. I think that's important. You hit a hot button there. It's such a great concept that you're developing there because I'm involved in the industry and an ongoing basis. There's some complaints about events in the banking industry, for instance, that are overly saturated with men doing presentations and men get asked to do this and that. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, especially in the world of social media, where a lot of these organizations, a lot of these events select their speakers based on the voices that they've seen in the marketplace, men, myself included, have no hesitation to showing our ego and pumping up our chest and being on social media and talking about what we think we know. Women just go about communicating differently. And in a social media world, it's almost more difficult to hear those voices. And as a result, we talk about the fact that we have to, we have an event called the Financial Brand Forum that we really have to dig sometimes to find the right speakers for any one topic. It's not like they're not there. They're just not as evident in the marketplace to find them. And, you know, the things you're talking about, the skill sets, the getting their voice, the be passion. It's why you stood out on the panel the other week when you were on the panel. I said, I don't hear this amount of passion and you're, you're, you're almost a diamond in the rough, but also sometimes invisible except in your organization. And it's a matter of saying, you know, you got to get the exposure. And it's difficult because, again, most women, they don't go out there and brag about what they can do. They just do it. <laughs> That's right. That's so true. And I'm criticizing myself at the same time. But, you know, we talk about the leaders in the industry. There are many times the silent people that do the work behind the scenes, but just have a great voice, have a great passion, have a great presentation skills. And that plays off within an organization as well. So if you don't have that voice, if you don't show that passion, it's hard to get a voice within an organization, let alone outside the world. That's right. And I've seen some women just break out of that shell all they need is a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of at a girl, like go get them, you know, a little, just a little bit. And it's like, wow, like where have you been hiding? You know? So I just think that we have to build each other up, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying I'm, there's, you know, some men and minorities, the same thing, right. but I, I just see it a lot with women just because this is the program that I run right now. Um, so everything you've said is spot on and it's what I see too. So a little bit of a detour, and this is something that came up actually a couple weeks ago. IBM just announced a major collaboration with Bank of America for a financial services-ready public cloud. Are you in a position to explain at all about the importance of this collaboration and what it can mean for the industry overall? Yeah, I think this is – I can talk a little bit about it. I think this is pretty significant. So we announced a partnership – well, we announced a public cloud that has capabilities that really help the FSS – companies feel safe, secure, protected, putting their workloads on uh, public cloud. There are so many regulations and rules and restrictions and so forth that banks and so forth have to deal with that it's sort of held them back from moving workloads to the public cloud. And I was going down the path of partnerships, but Bank of America is one of the first companies that are collaborating with us to move some of their workloads to the public cloud. And really what we've done is we've truly baked security and those regulations into the fabric of the IBM cloud platform. So just announced what it was like the, the day that I saw you. So I guess that was two weeks ago. It's two weeks now has been the announcement. So we're very excited about it. Many organizations are asking about it across FSS. And I'm encouraged. I mean, I've been working in cloud 
<laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if it was called cloud at the time, but I guess for like more than 10 years. And so seeing this and what we see is only 20% of the workloads have moved to public cloud. A lot of workloads are still on-prem and I still believe in hybrid clouds. I don't believe everything will move to public cloud, but I think this is going to give FSS organizations more confidence that they can be compliant. I understand the risks that you know, banks go through in protecting the individual's data. So I think that this is going to help them shift more of those workloads there to free up more time for disruption and for innovation. Well, and it really gets to the point of saying that no one's going to be able to do it alone. Organizations of all sorts in all industries are going to have to really partner to move forward to meet the needs of the digital consumer and to be able to leverage and make the most use of technologies that are out there. That's right. So, Finally, what bold trend or prediction can you provide for 2020? So I'm going to say this in the context of one of my, actually I'll do two sides of the coin. So from the digital standpoint, I believe that AI is going to get more integrated into the way we work. I think that companies are going to be moving out of more of the MVPs and more into production AI with more accountability and responsibility for explaining AI. We talk about a thousand flowers blooming, like there's a lot of projects, but I think organizations are afraid to put those projects into production because they can't explain the AI. I think we're gonna start to turn a corner there due to skills, due to experts, and due to technology. Yeah, we talked about it too, that it really gets down to value transfer. Yeah. I'm not going to have a I'm not going to have a real problem with an organization knowing more about me or trying to use my data to serve me better if it actually does that. It's when it steps out of that realm. You know, the reason why people are willing to pay $125 a year for the right to shop digitally, which is insane when you think about the the metrics is that Amazon does an amazing job of using my data to serve me better. And you feel it. Mm -hmm. Now, what's going to be interesting is the organizations that you work with, the ones that I work with, is that that raises expectations on all levels, from both the commercial side as well as the consumer side, to achieve more. So they're going to expect AI to be in place, but they're going to still be scared of what the result may be. And it's, again, I look at the use by police organizations using the cameras on houses to, to help solve crimes. Well, initially, that's a little scary until you realize that almost everybody's got a camera. And if I can solve the crime problem, I'm probably okay with you accessing that on an as-needed basis. Again, it's a value transfer. I agree with that. I'll add one thing to what you said. I think that organizations, for some of the applications, I think they're going to be hold to the table more than we've ever seen before because they've made decisions based on AI outcomes, but some of the data was biased. And so wasn't it City? Can't be honest, but there was a, a company a couple of weeks ago where Steve Wozniak said, you know. Apple and Goldman Sachs. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Right. So, so I think we're going to see more of those types of scenarios. And it's only because of the growing use of AI. So I think organizations are going to get smarter in terms of how they're using it and then feel like, okay, I'm really accountable and I'm going to be held accountable publicly for what gets pushed out where I'm making those decisions. So I think the notion of trust AI is going to be really important in 2020. Janine, I cannot believe this time went so fast. 
I'm really glad that I reached out and you agreed to uh, be on the Banking Transform podcast today. It's amazing what's going on. And I think I'm going to probably want to touch base with you about a year from now and to see how the digital transformation process, not only at IBM, but how your customer service organization has really worked with clients as well. Because I think this is a continuously moving dynamic and we're all in this together. We're all learning on the fly, but um, it's great to talk to you today. Thank you. You too, Jim. Take care. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, just rated as a top 10 banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.